Welcome to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast alongside Sun Devil Source publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Kerry Crowley. Chris, fresh off of an Arizona State 51-41 victory over the Cal Bears. The Sun Devils improved to 4-0. They get through the month of September unscathed. Arizona State needed 31 fourth quarter points to do it, the most by an FBS team in the fourth quarter this season. But it was quite a victory, and there's a lot of significance in being 4-0. Probably didn't need that DJ Calhoun uh, <laughs> kickoff uh, the better for a did. touchdown, but yeah, the betters did right because of the, the spread being three and a half. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Yeah, uh, I didn't expect ASU would be four and zero at this stage. We, we talked about this previously. Thought they'd probably lose one of those games uh, somewhere in there along, along the way. But uh, Todd Graham said at the press conference this week, uh, "It's good to learn and win," uh, and they've definitely done that. We've seen inconsistent play. Uh, on offense and defense, really, but special teams has uh, helped the te- help them out, um, especially against Cal uh, in that win. And um, I think they haven't played against anyone that would be considered a really good defense to this point, which has made things easier on Manny Wilkins and the offensive adjustment with four new offensive linemen and Chip Lindsey as a, as a play caller and all of those things. So the schedule kind of set it up well for their offense. And then defensively, nobody's probably going to test them more in the passing game. They're, of course, last in the country in four, with 400 yards allowed. But, uh, but yeah, didn't expect it. And now they have a, a legitimate chance uh, in the South. And when you look at the Pac-12 South historically, Arizona State's 2013 team is the only team to win the Pac-12 South going 8-1 and one in conference play. There's never been a no-loss Pac-12 South champion. ASU was the only one-loss Pac-12 South champion. It's always been a two-loss league, and this year it could even be a three-loss league. So the South is wide open right now. Yeah, this is something we've talked quite a bit about. You, you tend to have teams beat each other up in the South, and that's prevented uh, the Pac-12 from having teams play uh, in, into January, I think, uh, in previous years, when ASU won 8-1 eight, eight uh, in 2013, I believe it was, mm-hmm. that uh, was kind of a surprise. I don't think anybody really expected that to happen that quickly uh, in the Todd Graham era. But um, uh, this year looks to me like, again, where you just have a lot of parity, you're probably going to end up with maybe somebody go 7-2. and two. Um, we t- We've talked about this, and we could maybe see a situation in which UCLA – ends up 7-2, and two, but I don't know that anybody else will. Utah looks like they have a pretty easy schedule to start the season, could go 4-0, and oh, but my early uh, guess is that 6-3 and three and maybe even a tie at 6-3 and three ends up winning the league. Now, before we get into this ASU-Cal game and dive deep on that, what has enabled this 4-0 and oh start? What are some of the broader themes for ASU this season that have really started to appear the first four weeks of the season? Well, I think Chip Lindsey's imprint on the offense has been – really something to see unfold. Uh, Manny Wilkins, as a first-year starter, is completing 72% or something of his passes in the second half of games this year. It's been a tale of two halves in, in some respects for Wilkins. Uh, again, against uh, Cal, much as it was the case against UTSA, struggled in the first half. It wasn't play calling because the opportunities were really there for ASU to take advantage of, but he settled in. He has that next play mentality uh, Chip Lindsey called it the it factor as a quarterback. I'm not really sure that you can uh, define it, but he's um, a guy who just takes a licking, keeps on ticking, and uh, has done really well. And then, uh, like I said earlier, ASU has been fortunate that some of these games have been of the higher scoring variety um, because it's it's allowed them to settle in. 
and then they're able to work out some of the kinks defensively. Of course, last year ASU was was last in the country and 40 plus. Uh, explosive plays allowed and passing yards allowed and all these statistical things that indicated a bad secondary and they still have those problems this year but they've probably improved overall you have Kareem Orr who's done a, a good job as a cornerback save a couple reps Armand Perry's done a pretty good job settling in as a field side safety Lyo Mokiola when he's been out there at Spur, that's been very settling uh, for the defense and, and so they've done all of this without having all of their personnel defensively, uh, and uh, it's a pretty good result to be in this situation that they're in, given all the things that they've had to, to, to address. Well, it happened in San Antonio, and it happened in Tempe this weekend. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Huh. A tale of two cities, a tale of two halves for ASU. What, what kind of caused this? ASU was down at least 14. I think it was 27-10 at the half for uh, this week, twenty four ten. Twenty four ten. I'm getting that twenty seven ten from the Cal ASU game last year when it was ASU who was in the lead at that time and Cal who had the comeback victory. This time ASU behind and then ASU rallies in the second half. What caused this tale of two halves? So one of the things I noticed right off the bat was the way that Cal up front with its defensive line was defending ASU's uh, zone runs. Uh, they had their best uh, player uh, was lined up right over the football, A.J. AJ McCollum at center, and they were being disruptive right at the point of attack. So a lot of the, the stretch and outside zone runs, uh, there was um, first their, their lineman, and then they were having a linebacker pop behind it, and so they were getting into the backfield. Uh, Cal is a team that had to look at making some significant adjustments in its run game because they'd been given up 279 yards or something like that uh, going into this game, just really been gashed by all three of their previous opponents. And so they, they did make some changes in that regard. ASU took a while to kind of figure out what they were doing. Another thing that I think was an issue was Manny Wilkins was just kind of not on. He only threw the ball 10 times in the first half, completing five of those throws. But I counted a missed touchdown opportunity where where Chip Lindsey went to a 21 personnel look and Demario Richard came clean into the end zone. And Wilkins ended up getting sacked because he didn't see it and on that rep. He also had Jalen Harvey after a post scramble open for what probably would have been a first down to move the chains and, and present a first and goal opportunity. Uh, there was another play where Wilkins made a bad had uh, RPO read where he thought it was going to pass the ball, but then he saw they were in zone instead of man coverage. He ended up uh, holding on to the football, taking a sack there. And there was a third and nine play where they had the perfect call. They motioned out the back, which uh, told them that it, it was zone coverage, not man coverage. But then Wilkins didn't look to the correct side of the field where he had Tim White on an out route that was in between the underneath and, out, and, and deep zone defender. That would have been a first down, and that wasn't converted. So they shot themselves in the foot on offense quite a bit in that first half. And then um, on uh, defensively, remember when ASU had that uh, Cal was on the one-yard line? Third and 11 from the one-yard line. Correct. And and they almost got there. Karan Crump on a six-man rush jumped and hit uh, Cal's quarterback uh, as he released the ball, Davis Webb. And and Hanson just made an unbelievable play, he just yeah. pirouetted in the air and somehow managed to catch the ball and get his foot down in bounds. And Kareem Moore's, uh his defense was fine on that play. It just was probably a one out of 10 or one out of 15 type of a play. But then they took the ball all the way down and scored uh, on that possession. And so just, you know, the game often comes down to really a handful of plays, maybe in each half that, 
have a, a huge sway over the score, and definitely that was the case in that game. You look at three of Cal's scoring drives in the first half were all over 75 yards, including that 98-yard drive where the Bears actually ended up going 99 yards because Arizona State forced him back, nearly got a turnover on the goal line when Webb and Onweary botched the uh, quarterback-running back exchange, and that could have really changed the course of the game. Much like ASU getting the safety against Texas Tech, but these opponents are continually pinned deep in their own zone. And yes, ASU gave up 673 yards, but a lot, or 637 yards, but a lot of that is a result of ASU continually putting teams in bad field position. It's been a huge factor this season. Um, what we saw in this game was Manny Wilkins had two pooch punts. One was at the two yard line, one I think was at the five yard line. Uh, we saw. A 50-plus yard punt average from Matt Hawk. Uh, there was a fair catch at the 10. So they started, I think, three times inside of their own 10. There was Out of five punts, there was no touchbacks. Their average starting position was at the 21, talking about Cal. ASU's starting position was the 40-41 40, yard line. So that's an enormous difference in a game where you're going to have a lot of points. They forced Cal into full field drives uh, to score. Uh, and and that's when you when you give up 678 yards, but you still win. It usually is because you didn't turn the ball over that much. ASU had one turnover versus three by Cal, and um, you, you had good field position, or you forced good field position uh, for your defense starting out on drive. So they did all those things. Uh, Zane Gonzalez, special teams player of the week again. This guy is is unbelievable. We're seeing things. Graham today, <laughs> he he called him uh, a beyond elite. Yeah, I don't you know, know what what category that puts him in but beyond elite yeah he said he started out good and then he became elite and now he's in some uh godlike place uh, you know after he wins the the lou Groza award is the lifetime achievement award this year that that i'm convinced he's going to get it's going to become the zane gonzalez award right i mean Tagram, he's prone to some superlatives right but this guy is now like a greek god in his eyes the way he's the way he sees zane gonzalez i understand that because uh, we're talking about a kicker who made multiple 50-plus yarders in one half, which, which had never been done against UTSA. Uh, in this game against Cal, he made all three of his field goals, all automatic, obvi- obviously, from PATs. Uh, all of his kickoffs were either touchbacks or they were they shouldn't have been returned. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, which you know they, they brought one out, which I think ended up around like the 14-yard line. Mm-hmm. So. Um, just a huge, you know, thing, and then of course the, the the hands team and DJ Calhoun snaring that football and taking it back for the punctuation mark that brought some size relief to some of the, the betters. <laughs> you know, coming into this season, the book on Zane Gonzalez was inside of forty, really inside of forty-five yards. He's accurate; you can depend on him. And Todd Graham said as much today. He said he used to think of the thirty-yard line as the opportunity for ASU to send the field goal team out and have no worries. And now he says he's comfortable any anytime ASU. Gets gets the ball inside the 40-yard line. And there's NFL teams that don't have that luxury. I think there's uh, 14 kickers maybe in the country who are perfect on field goals for the year, but only two of them have had as many tries as Zane Gonzalez's 11 or more. Zane Gonzalez missed only one. It was a 53-yarder mm-hmm. against UTSA. This guy is definitely in a good position to be a finalist for the Lou Groza Award unless something really bad you know, kind of happens to his consistency the rest of the way. And he's got a really good chance to win it. Seven of his... 17 longest career field goals now have come in the last five games ASU has played. That's a great sign because, it, like you said, this is a guy who was really consistent inside of 40 yards previously, but outside of that, it was it was at best a 50-50 proposition. That's totally changed. Now, even the, the miss that he had was just a little bit wide left on 53 yards. 
You don't nope. expect him to. You don't expect the guy to to miss anything inside <laughs> of fifty yards anymore, and to say that about a college kicker is is remarkable. Now we're going to talk a lot about the changes that ASU made schematically in the second half, but I want to start by first talking about Chip Lindsey because it may look to a lot of fans who just watch the game see just ten points in the first half and this huge explosion in the second half of forty one points that Lindsey really changed up his play calling that he did a lot of different things, but that wasn't the case. No. Um, it was a combination of some missed blocks up front, um, maybe a couple times where backs didn't go exactly where they probably should have, which is that's a very instinctive type of a position, and you're, and you're reading it and just trying to on the fly. Uh, but uh, I just noticed um, multiple times um, it was in McCollum or McCray or Quinn Bailey on some of the stretch runs working to the left that they were getting uh, beaten at the line of scrimmage. Uh, and then Wilkins uh, had an inability to sustain drives because of some of the decision-making uh, was flawed or some of the where he went with the football, even though they had really good uh, plays drawn up for the situations. And, and I think it's important that we talk about this. All these things are determined by – uh, these programs that they use to determine what plays teams run in certain down and distance uh, formation tendencies. And then the coordinators decide based on these things that they get from Exos Digital and DV Sport, these these uh, these programs that they're pe- spending tens of thousands of dollars annually to sort of uh, drill down on all these things, what formations that we need to run against uh, those types of defensive looks. And it really becomes a chess match on an elevated level. Chip Lindsey is a very calm, quiet. Everybody talks about just how his demeanor is unlike uh, a lot of um, – coaches maybe an older school approach to, to coaching and I think it's because he's really more of a technic tactician uh, some of the play calls that were designed QB runs for Wilkins in the first half were because they saw a six-man box mm-hmm. and it was and a draws great, against six-man boxes it was a really good opportunity to run the football right so I so his his play calling I thought was really good throughout the game it's just that in the second half as Wilkins settled in and, and they kind of figured out what they were doing with some of the uh, defensive structure to, uh, to the run defense that they were able to get some drive sustainment and then uh, kind of explode. Of course, it helps a lot when you have uh, a pick six return for a touchdown mm-hmm. and you have a short field that's given to you by Salamo Fizo and some of the other opportunities presented by the defense. Now, two big things that stuck out to me in the second half were Manny Wilkins going 16 of 20, just really great completion percentage rate. 80% of his passes were solid in the second half, and that was compared to the first half where he just went 5 of 10, didn't have as many opportunities because ASU wasn't sustaining drives. And then the other thing that jumped out to me is how ASU has successfully used the tempo run game this year. They did it on the first drive of the season against NAU, put up a quick 7 points on the Lumberjacks and didn't go back to it the rest of the game, but then came out with some tempo run in the second half against UTSA and had a lot of success down 16 points in the second half. They still were able to use the run game. And then against Cal, down 14 points at halftime, they come out and immediately run the ball. Demario Richard had 19 yards in the first half, 27 yards on the first drive of the second half when ASU rushed for 46 yards. And what was interesting about that particular drive was it was all between the tackles. It was like inside zone and power. It was running right at uh, the opponent as opposed to some of the stretch stuff that Cal was able to slip into some of the gaps. And so I think that at halftime, you don't make 
it's not like you're making adjustments only at halftime because they're happening throughout the game. But I think at halftime there was sort of a resettling and just a, a communication to the offensive line. We're just going to run the ball right at them. And then even though ASU didn't have a lot of success subsequently to that uh, in the half running the football, it didn't really need to. It only averaged, I think, three yards a carry. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the surprise of the whole game was ASU ending up with 160-some rushing yards or whatever it ended up being, but uh, as opposed to the 280 that, that Cal had been given up normally. But as you mentioned – Wilkins had these great opportunities that were uh, on a platter for him in the second half. You look at uh, how ASU used the Sparky formation with Chip Lindsey. Brilliantly. Right. Two times they get they convert a fourth down, then they use it again on first down. They force Cal into a timeout. And then the, the same personnel comes onto the field after the timeout, but Cody Cole, instead of being the inline tight ends in a different alignment, J.J. Wilson was in line, and then they release him. And Luke Rubenzer, who's a local prospect from Sorrell High School, he didn't identify the key read on the release because he expected it to be something similar to what they were, were, were had shown previously, even though Wilkins was now the quarterback instead of Kalen Balaj out of the formation. And J.J. Wilson ran right by him. Rubenzer had struggled in this game. Um, it was kind of a microcosm of Cal's issues uh, in the secondary. There was really only one uh, great performance from Cal in the secondary from one of its cornerbacks, Allensworth. Other than that, uh, ASU did a really good job. And as the game wore on, Wilkins became more comfortable, and they put a lot more points on the board. And one thing that I want to talk about, for the first three games of the season, Nikhil Harry was really one of ASU's primary targets on offense. He got just one catch, two targets during this game. But... There was the emergence of Jalen Harvey in the third quarter, a great play from Cam Smith as well, where he fought through on a screenplay that looked dead on arrival and ended up picking picking up like 20 to 30 yards on a play where he just muscled his way forward, and you were really able to see the added bulk that he that he put on his body in the offseason pay off, and it was Cam Smith's really best game back since his injury last year. Yeah, even though he's a bigger, stronger guy, you haven't seen him really drag defenders or be more of a physical uh, player as a pass catcher you have in the blocking game because mm-hmm. he's a very good blocker Jalen Harvey is a player that y- he maybe surprises you with some of his athletic uh, moves catching the football um, he's a very good blocker he's a physical player he's got a, a nasty type of a disposition but then he makes these adjustments on the football uh, in the air where he's like how did you contort and make that grab you don't look like you're that type of a player where he's getting great elevation he's high pointing footballs he's doing some things that are pretty impressive uh, for a second year player a guy who just was really hardly used at all prior to this year in his ASU career Mm -hmm. and when you look at the future it's not as though Tim White was a huge offensive target in this game he was the leading receiver and and, and I mean that says a lot that's what I was going to say he still ends up you know so so, but moving forward you're going to have all these guys back with the exception of Tim White and then you're going to be adding Ryan Newsom and, and Humphrey into the mix and so I don't really see this group dropping off. And, and by the way, since we're talking about the receivers, how many drops have we seen this year? Nikhil Harry had one that was kind of behind him, not really a great throw. Other than that, I don't even – there's almost been no drops all season through four games. This is something that ASU fans have lamented year after mm-hmm. year with guys uh, uh, dropping balls that they should have caught that have uh, forced them to, to, to uh, not be able to convert on drives. I mean, we've talked about it many times on this podcast, but this is the Jay Norvell effect showing up. And I saw it over the weekend when you look at the NFL, Sterling Shepard of the New York Giants, the receiver out of Oklahoma, is already off to a great start. He was a second-round draft pick, outpacing some of these guys who were taken in the first round because he may not be as athletic. But he's so fundamentally sound, and that just shows up in every single one of Jay Norvell's receivers. I look at the, the blocking 
uh, how those guys execute. The, the route depths are now being run pretty consistently at, at the correct thing. You're not having miscommunications. Um, their guys are catching the football properly. It really almost in every way that you would look at from a skill development standpoint, there's been a, a progress there. And I think the level of athlete on, on average uh, on balance is getting uh, improved. And so I, I think that's just going to be a group that continues to take off, especially because Wilkins is a sophomore. You're probably going to have more rhythm. Lindsay's first year as offensive coordinator, you're going to get more continuity in that regard. I don't think that's going to decrease your offensive line. You're going to re- bring everybody back except for two seniors. But uh, there's other guys that are waiting in the wings that are going to be able to take on those roles. You have good tight ends uh, that are that are kind of younger. So. I, I don't see them really taking a step backwards, and I, I believe ASU is first in the conference right now in, in total points. Uh, 40, Should be. 48 or 49 points, which is uh, above outpacing the record uh, for ASU, which was uh, 46.1, I believe, 1972. 1972, or, yeah, 1972, when, um, when Frank Cush, when, you know, one of his mm-hmm. the final portion of his uh, tenure there. So they're, they're doing some things that probably weren't anticipated, uh, but maintaining that as they get into the meatier portion of their schedule <laughs> yes. is going to be difficult. Yes, they're doing some things against programs like Cal and Texas Tech that have coaches geared toward the offensive side of the ball. <laughs> right. It was a given that ASU was going to give up 400 yards through the air in this game. Even if ASU played well, Cal was just going to throw the ball. We were talking about before the game about 400 yards being a really good performance if mm-hmm. ASU would only give up 400 yards passing. We thought they were going to win 400, maybe even 450. Uh, they ended up having four- 478. 478 still got the win. So it was kind of right in the realm of what we anticipated. I, I don't think anybody is going to be a threat to put up quite as many passing yards on ASU the rest of the way with the possible exception of Washington State, but that's a home game, and and they're maybe not quite as explosive this year as they have been in the past. So let's talk about the defensive adjustments that ASU made in the second half that enabled the Sun Devils' success. Cal, of course, had well over th- uh, 350 yards of offense in the first half against ASU, and the Sun Devils have veterans on the field understanding the different types of routes that Cal's running, and that enabled Salamo Fiso to come up with an interception. It helped Layu Mokiola when ASU varied its coverages come up with that pick six. What did ASU do differently in the second half that enabled those turnovers to happen? So there was a certain type of formation that we were seeing uh, Cal use with an H-back uh, on uh, one side of the formation and then the other side a slot receiver, and they were um, – releasing those players into routes that were kind of diagonally across the formation. ASU was in underneath zone coverage with DJ Calhoun and Salamo Fizo and Lyo Mokiola forming an underneath thirds uh, defense. And basically what happens is as those receivers are, 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 are cross-sectioning that, uh, the, def- the defenders have to adjust from one receiver to the other or one area of the zone to the other area of the zone. Er- uh, early in the game, they weren't doing a, a good job of widening. Calhoun didn't widen out the receiver, and Fizo wasn't a- adjusting from the H-back to the slot uh, guy quick enough on some of those routes. Well, after seeing that a few times, uh, being a veteran, uh, and having just a lot more awareness situationally, even though Salamo Fizo know, is known as a run stopper, uh, he's been challenged by Keith Patterson and the ASU defensive coaches to be better against the pass. That's going to enhance his draft prospects uh, after this year. Uh, and he saw what was coming. He adjusted from uh, the one area of the zone to the other side, uh, 
even before the ball came out from Davis Webb, Davis Webb didn't see it happening because he expected it to be open as it had been earlier in the game. It wasn't. He stepped right in front, intercepted the ball, and that uh, was probably the most important play, I would say, of the game. Um, and then Lyo Mokiola had a play subsequent to that that also was really impressive that showed something about ASU's game. Yeah, last week we, we talked about Nikhil Harry improving his draft stock and talking about his potential in, in three years from now where he could end up being. Uh, Pro Football Focus kind of got that conversation started with its <laughs> great of Nikhil Harry as the number one receiver in the country. We said that that was going to cool off when he got into Pac-12 play. I don't play. think that's a scientific algorithm <laughs> that they're using. However, we did say last week on our premium report how important important it was for Laiu Mokiola to be in the game at Spur linebacker at for Spur. ASU and he plays Spur linebacker he comes up with the pick six and he emerges with the top overall grade of any ASU defensive player from pro football focus so it give it yeah and it take it the way well look it's it's <laughs> In our play anatomy, which our subscribers were able to see, we spotlighted the difference between Marcus Ball and Lyle Mokiola in that game against UTSA. Of course, ASU made the change to Mokiola at Spur with about eight minutes left in the third quarter after uh, a breakdown by Marcus Ball. That was one of several that enabled a touchdown and, and put UTSA ahead by 26 to 12, I believe, at the time, um, maybe 28 to 12. But uh, in this game, Kerry, Elio Mokiola was at Spur from the beginning. Uh, he's such an important uh, player because of um, the requirements of that role against the run and the pass and how you have to be able to be uh, able to get to all kinds of different spots on the field and be able to blitz and be able to be physical against the run into the alley. It's a very tough assignments. Um, but in this game, what happened that I found really interesting was ASU was using more zone coverage that was disguised, which we, may we maybe hadn't seen as much of from ASU in the last couple years. Lyle Mokiola was aligned over the number two receiver receiver uh, with two players, two receivers into, onto the field side. And so Davis Webb sees that. He thinks it's man coverage. There's no safety that's really over the top. But then at the snap, Lyle Mokiola undercut that because he had a flat zone and mm -hmm. they were rotating a safety over to take the number two receiver. And that enabled him to, to, to make the interception. Now, he had made a couple plays on that previously. So the throw probably shouldn't have even been made because Webb should have identified that that might have been his own uh, covered situation. Mokiola had only tipped the ball, though, previously. This time he was able to get his hands on it, uh, catch it, take it in for a touchdown. That ultimately proved to be the difference. Of course, we, we know about the icing on the top that happened after that. Two other defensive players I want to talk about really quickly. Kareem Orr struggled in the first half a little bit against Chad Hansen, who's really just one of the best receivers in the Pac-12, if not the best. Hansen came in as the number one player in the entire country in receptions, yardage, yardage per game. You, you knew that he was going to get his, and he had eight catches for 105 yards, I believe, at halftime against Kareem Orr. But... Or was kind of sticking with him in coverage. Some of those catches were just unbelievable plays yeah. by Hanson. Yeah, and watching that game back, you know, especially in the first half where he had all those catches, I was surprised because other than maybe a couple, two or three plays, Orr was right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the route execution by Hanson and some of the play calls uh, in, in some of the one-on-one -on -one situations were just so crisply executed that almost nobody was going to be able to stop that. And Hanson, for my money, is right there with Juju Smith-Schuster uh, as the best wide receiver in the, in the Pac-12. You have, of course, Shea Fields and some other guys mm -hmm. who are, are really talented and deserve recognition. But that was a great combination of size at six foot, 295 pounds, athleticism to be able to get vertical and to make some of these uh, – 
a contortion catches on the sidelines like the one we talked about earlier. Uh, he returned to the ball really nicely. ASU made a smart schematic adjustment by playing Kareem Orr uh, against uh, Chad Hansen by moving him from the, the boundary side to the field side right from the outset of this game in order to contend against what he knew would be its 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 uh, toughest assignment. That was a really good, smart game plan but decision by Todd Graham and Keith Patterson. We talked about in the preview about the possibility for Deshaun Hayes to get lost in coverage because of how, with his back to the football, Hanson's uh, ability to cut routes off and get back would open up some plays. Well, Cream Orr is more advanced, I think, a little bit at this point in his career as a cornerback because he's been a defensive back his whole life where Hayes is really new to it. And, and Hayes has done... Not bad, all things considered. He's had some breakdowns, but not bad. But I thought that was an important thing. And then in the second half, as ACU got more and more comfortable with what uh, Cal was doing in that game, it pretty much shut a lot of that stuff down. Yeah, Hanson ended the second half with two catches for six yards, and he spent most of the quarter with one catch for minus one yard. Yeah. And that is just Kareem Orr having probably his best half of football. And yet another uh, indication of what ASU has been able to do with its uh, defensive adjustments in the second half really all season. They had a much better uh, job against Texas Tech when they switched from being a primary zone dropping team to an attacking team in the second half. They did better against UTSA in the second half. They forced four three and outs in a row and then uh, a turnover on downs to end the game. And then in this game, they made some uh, their key players made plays. They had some smart defensive adjustments and really they've been a second-half team on both sides of the ball. The other player that I wanted to talk about, we got to see his reps up close and personal at the very end of the game when ASU sent him on the field as the boundary corner. He'd been playing nickel corner, and that's Robbie Robinson. He was matched up against Demetrius Robertson, a five-star prospect for Cal, and he had two outstanding in-phase reps against a five-star. Right. Robertson slowly starting to come into his own early in the season. They primarily only used him uh, on go routes or just hanging out in the flat where they'd throw the ball to him uh, quickly and get blockers out in front of him. There was a little bit more route evolution in this game, but still not a lot. You kind of knew he, what he was likely to do. He had beaten Hayes earlier in the game uh, on a touchdown, I believe. And Rob, Rob, to, to ask Robbie Robinson to go in there and just you know hang with that guy, it's tough, especially when you're not playing a lot uh, throughout a game and you're just coming in on Nick downs and you're playing at a position on the field where you don't have the sideline that's an advantage you guys have two-way goes uh, a lot of coaches think that that's the toughest position on the field as a defensive back is to be able to handle that nickel corner uh, assignment and for a true freshman he's really done uh, outstanding I would say so let's look just for a moment at ASU secondary next year I know we're getting ahead of ourselves but you have Kareem Orr back who's really been one of your best players Todd Graham has said he's yes. graded out the best defensively and he had a great second half against Cal you get Armand Perry back. You have Kyle Williams, who has a ton of athleticism, just has only played defense for four weeks in his life. And now yeah. you look at the potential second corner is Robbie Robinson, yeah. and you stand to really improve. Yes, this is a defense that is last in the country in passing yards, but it has played Texas Tech. It has already played Cal. It stands to improve from here on out. I think they're going to only get better. Uh, I think Armand Perry, there's a question about whether he's a field side safety or a bandit uh, moving forward. I like him a lot against the run. He fills extremely aggressively. I think he can play a robber position uh, in zone. Uh, he's not as much of a man coverage guy, even though he can do that. That's not probably not his forte. Uh, 
I think I think in Kareem Moore, we're talking about a guy who's probably going to be an all-league cornerback uh, at some point in his career, maybe even as a junior, if not as a senior. Uh, Robbie Robinson is a guy who you can probably plug right in there and be able to play base downs. And then I think Kyle Williams, who I probably see as a field side safety, I would probably flip those guys, mm-hmm. use them that way. He has the athletic uh, range of uh, Demarius Randall. Not not saying he has those playmaking instincts at this stage, but he has that type of just athletic potential. I think we can agree on that part of it. And then we haven't even talked about Chase Lucas, a player who <laughs> nearly played this season uh, and then will spurn his redshirt despite the fact that he was 155 pounds or so when he first got to ASU. He's six foot and he's going to end up 175, 180, be an athletic player. And then you're going to have a year older and more experienced Jamarcus Rhodes, Maurice Chandler. You have more options, more athleticism, more understanding of what you're doing schematically. They're going to be better next year. But you mentioned Chase Lucas. I had completely forgot him. Put Chase Lucas. I had at, you. Put Chase Lucas at Bandit. Put Armand Perry at Spur, and you've got a secondary. That's it. That you have. I got thought about a really the possibility of playing because Armand Perry is really good against the run, and he can cover. They've used him uh, as a freshman as a nickel corner. Well, nickel mm-hmm. corner is basically just not a, that different from Spur. It's just a lighter Spur. Right, yeah. so why can't he just go out there and play spur? I think that might be the move, particularly when you lose Mokiola and you haven't had anybody that's demonstrated that they can play that position without it being a big drop off. Definitely. So ASU four and zero now, a sixty eight fifty five win over Texas Tech, a fifty one forty one win over Cal, a pair of shootouts against two of the top passing offenses, the two p- top passing offenses in the country. Who's better of those two teams? Which win sticks out a little more? I think Cal's probably a little bit better. They they run the ball a little, a little more and better. I think their defense was probably better. They uh, mixed up their coverages. They played man and zone. I don't think their players had necessarily a very good game defensively on the back end uh, other than maybe one. But I do think that Cal... Uh, and, and, you know, the Pac-12 is probably, you know, it depends on what league is harder and what the matchups are like and all those kinds of things. But I don't think Cal's a bad football team. I like Davis Webb. I thought Patrick Mahomes of Texas Tech was a little bit more hesitant to step up into the pocket and make throws with uh, a guy barreling down on him. We saw time and again Webb was just keeping his eyes down the field. And even when he was about to be contacted, he was still making the right read, still going through everything. He had a couple uh, mistakes there in the, late in the fourth quarter. But but overall, I would say probably Cal's a little bit better, and that wins a little bit better. I would agree with you. There were times on Saturday night where I thought Cal was really well coached, and then there were times where I thought they were missing something. They had to take that time out when ASU went to the Sparky formation. That's something you have to be able to defend. ASU showed right. it on film, and that's a timeout that probably would have cost them if they had, re- had recovered that onside kick that DJ Calhoun ultimately took to the house for ASU and cemented the outcome of that game. But ASU has seen everything in the passing game. Things get a little easier scheming for opponents from here on out because you're familiar with the USC's and the UCLA's of the world. So I think it's time we roll on through our Pac-12 roundup this week. It's time. And there's no better place to start than Colorado and Oregon. We said last week on the podcast Nailed we it. thought Colorado was a sleeper, a contender Can we get a possibility round of, round of the in audience. the Pac-12. I didn't receive any hate mail emails as, as I predicted. And I got no bank account emails. Colorado goes in with a 41-38 victory over the Oregon Ducks and Eugene. Oregon Ducks are taking a step back this year. We kind of anticipated that. I think it's been a slow 
downward arc. There's going to be some questions about their coaching staff at this stage of the, of the process. Colorado is extremely well coached. Todd Graham has said it. We've said it. They are they slide protect with seven to get the ball downfield to Ross and to their other top receiver Shea, Shea Fields. Fields and. Bryce Bobo uh, had that unbelievable catch. Correct. They have, so, so they have so they have weapons on offense. Their running game is relatively solid. Defensive, their structure is sound. Uh, and 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 do not be surprised if Colorado is competing in the Pac-12 South. I, I know that's never happened before. It would be kind of a surprise, probably out there in college football, but not really to us if you're actually watching the the these these teams play on Saturdays. So let's run run through some of the other scores. Colorado's next opponent, I believe, is Oregon State. Boise State beat them a 38-24 victory. Not much to uh, celebrate right now in Corvallis. Oregon State is the worst team in the Pac-12. I think it's pretty clear-cut. Yeah. The uh, the other game that had a really interesting backdoor cover was Stanford and U- UCLA. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stanford scores in the final minute of that game and then returns a fumble. Two scores. Off of uh, Josh Rosen to win that one 22-13. UCLA kept it closer than I thought it would. Yeah, UCLA had a good defensive performance in that game, right? They have a new pro-style offense that they're working in. I think there's questions about Rosen being in sync with some of their skill players. That's something that we talked about last week, I believe, as well. Mm-hmm. That's going to continue to be the case. But I, I expect they're going to be in pretty much every game. Their talent is good. They have a good quarterback. Uh, their defense has actually held up uh, reasonably well. So at this stage of the uh, of the game, you might say that UCLA is a slight favorite in the Pac-12 South. They've got Stanford out of the way. Yes, it's a loss, but you don't have to play them down the stretch. Right. And you look at who they lost to earlier in the season, Texas A&M, an overtime game. A&M looks like the second-best team in the SEC right now. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, I think UCLA is going to be in pretty much all their games, and I'm not – I know we were talking. You think that UCLA has a chance to end up seven and two in the league. I mm-hmm. lean more towards staying six and three, but uh, I'd be surprised if they're anything uh, below five and four. Mm-hmm. Then you look at uh, the other Pac-12 South school in action uh, outside of USC and Utah, and that was Arizona, which took Washington to the brink, a 35-28 final in overtime. I'm surprised the by Huskies that. The Huskies won. Yeah, I was too. I'm surprised by that. A game on the road, Arizona had struggled against the run and, and just had uh, some athletic uh, limitations where they seemed overmatched at times in, in earlier games this year. Uh, to not play, uh, to, for Washington to not play better in that game kind of surprised me. Yeah, I, I mean, we both like what Chris Peterson's doing at Washington. He's a good football coach. And the eye test, apparently, we saw a few tweets coming out that Washington just looks so physically impressive compared to Arizona before yeah. that game. The U of A so. scout people were, were really surprised by the, the, the size differential, and yet Arizona was able to hang in there. So the final game to talk about will go on for this one for a little bit. Utah with a final minute victory over USC to drop the Trojans to one and three. Utah remains undefeated, 31-27. How about Utah's schedule coming up? We looked at it. It's very light on the front end. Really, they'll probably be favored in all four of their first games to start. Um, I think they have uh, Oregon State, Washington State, Cal maybe. Mm -hmm. Are there other opponents coming up? Is it possible that Utah ends up 4-0 to start the season before they get into a really difficult stretch of games to end? And what does that do for Utah if, if they're able to be 4-0 or maybe 3-1 at worst psychologically moving forward? This is a team that 
does have good line play, both offense and defense. They tend to be well coached, good special teams, kicker, punter, all of those things. When when Utah hasn't turned the football over, and especially with its quarterback play, mm-hmm. it's really been there in the games. There's an athletic component that they've had with the read option at that position is more limited from a throwing standpoint. But they never had they've never really had great athletes at the receiver spots. Anyways, it's more of a field position, ball control style, and um, again there's a chance because of that for them to hang in with pretty much anybody and now usc 0-2 in conference play oh i mean lost to to asu and usc's probably out of the conversation for the south and clay helton is immediately coaching for his job yeah is it possible that uh, if asu beats usc on saturday that even though it's a home game for the trojans uh that clay helton gets summoned to lax for a tarmac firing (laughs) like i mean it's you already he was a unpopular hire mm-hmm. when it was made because first head coaching job, um, you know, for his age and really no track record that was, you know, very proven as a coordinator or at, a, at an elite school or anything like that. And so people wanted a different name. And then now this looks like a confirmation of that. Of course, they have a new defensive coordinator, Clancy Pendergast, that last play touchdown that they gave up, which led to the Utah win. Uh, there was a, a play, a zone defender who was out of position. And there's just going through an adjustment phase on 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 defense, and the offense hasn't really looked as good as it probably should, given what Todd Cram said is the best running backs, the best receivers, and the best offensive line that ASU is going to play this season. Um, we're going to see, though, if they're going to start to get any sort of continuity with that uh, and if that starts against ASU or not. 1-3 and three this season, now 1-5 and five under Clay Helton when he's been a full-time coach. That's scary bad. The reason I think it's not out of the realm of possibilities that Clay Helton could be fired if ASU wins this game is because the Tom Herman sweep, sweepstakes are already opened up with LSU firing less miles this early. You look at the other big programs that could potentially be changing head coaches, Notre Dame, had to fire its defensive coordinator. Brian Kelly might be on the hot seat after a loss to Duke. Oklahoma and Bob Stoops has two losses. That was a topic of conversation last season. Charles Strong lost to Cal in a Big 12 conference where no team looks good right now. So a few losses and he could be out of it. And then Gus Malzahn, Graham's former offensive coordinator, he probably bought himself Saved some time job, with a victory. A well, Saved his job for the for, for a the while. Mo- for the month of September, maybe through October. <laughs> right. But you're looking at five, six premier college programs that could be making coaching changes this off season, and you just don't want to fall behind if you're a premier school like USC. I think you made a, a great point there. The the less miles firing starts the domino structure earlier mm-hmm. than you typically would see. And USC has been a program much like Texas where there's just a lot of dysfunction kind of around it with the AD hires and the coaching and the boosters and how all that stuff's worked. And, and, uh, I think the result of that has led to, um, decision-making processes that haven't always been very sound. And, and so as a result of that, you could see a quick, you know, mm-hmm. emotional decision to make a coaching move that then puts you in better position to for a Tom Herman or whoever it, the case may be. There's some really good coaches out there. Petrino, I think, is. Yeah. I mean, I understand. You know, he's he's got a, a Heisman caliber quarterback for the next year and a half. But how do you turn down if you're him an LSU or a USC or something like that? I think that would be pretty hard, but there's some there's some really good coaches out there, and the dominoes are starting early this year. Two other names that I wanted to mention really quickly. After a loss to Colorado, Oregon now plays Washington State 
if Oregon loses to Washington State, I don't see them changing coaches midseason, but it's not going to look good for Mark Helfrich. Yeah, because that already was another hire that was made and was kind of, eh, is that going to work? It's kind of, it's 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 handing it off to your protege, but a protege who comes from a different sort of schematic background as you. There there was questions about, is the offense going to be able to stay ahead of the curve, which uh, really, that, that was the, the forte of Chip Kelly is always kind of being ahead of the curve. They've, they, they've, they've lost that to, to some degree, and that's probably just the nature of college football and how things kind of evolve and, and take shape. But I, I agree that he could be really um, in a world of hurt if 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 Oregon loses another couple games in October, people are going to be calling for Helfrich's head. So the last name, we said Tom Herman. He's the obviously number one candidate on the market right now. Yeah. Who else? Does that mean Mike Norvell could be a candidate somewhere? Uh, Mike Norvell and Chip Lindsey. One season at Memphis. He came coming off a 77-3 win over Bowling Green. I mean, they're lining up the scoreboard. They're doing a good job in recruiting. Uh, they've they've landed some four-star players there. Um, why not? Why wouldn't he get yeah. an opportunity? Especially when you're going to probably end up with a bunch of what we're seeing every year is more and more coaching turnover, more jobs that are open, just. Uh, and associated with that, you get more moves, more aggressive decisions in the in the process by ads and, and search firms, and so I think all that stuff's on the table. I mean, if if ASU wins, goes eight and four and, and averages forty five points a game, why isn't Chip Lindsay a candidate somewhere? I mean, I, I think uh, it's absolutely. I, I think it's really possible. Uh, well, I did make an error of fact earlier. I said that Les Miles and LSU started the uh, Tom Herman sweepstakes. It was actually Florida International that had the first hiring <laughs> of the season, so they're in on Herman early. Wow, <laughs> See, we're we're very aggressive with this with the self correction in yes. Sun Devil Source. <laughs> so that will do it for the Sun Devil Source report. ASU a fifty-one forty-one win over Cal. Chris, any final takeaways? Nah. <laughs> that's I, it i'm good that's it for the week be sure to tune into our sun devil source premium report podcast that will drop on thursday evening ahead of asu's upcoming matchup with usc we're gonna get way into that people i mean yeah. that that that's one thing i will say the cal uh expert preview was four thousand words mm-hmm. all the players and the premium podcast was an hour the premium podcast i mean we like what we're giving you here is definitely a good taste, but we go way more in the weeds uh, on those premium podcasts on the upcoming opponent and things that we're looking for. It's, it really gives you an advantage when watching the game. He's Sun Devil Source publisher Chris Cartman. I'm host and editor Kerry Crowley. Thank you so much for tuning into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Be sure to drop us a rating in iTunes or in each program you listen to our podcast in. But thank you so much for joining us, and uh, be sure to tune in later in the week. Thank you.